Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to New Opportunities for Growth. We're here today talking about financial analyses. And I just want to take a moment, Kathy, and just ask you a very important question. Why is this so important? I want us to just take a minute and just think about financial analyses in regards to smart manufacturing and to really kind of talk about that rationale so we can hook our learners and really get them to understand how this fits into the bigger picture, which is, of course, finances and smart manufacturing. So I think every employee, every manager, certainly every CEO and board director, everybody needs to know about financial analysis. It's really, to me, the thing that makes a difference between great CEOs or even owner operators of small businesses. They know about finance. It's a common language. All businesses use it. I can't compare myself to others without it. You have to know, too, that silly things like just, just because we have sales coming in doesn't mean necessarily that we're making a profit or that just because we have a profit that we have cash. I mean, those are key things we have to pay attention to all the time. For this class, smart manufacturing, we're trying to figure out how our decisions to implement a new smart manufacturing project is going to contribute to our bottom line results, right? That's what, what you know, look, it's, it's all about building shareholder wealth. Um, profits are certainly a big piece of that. But, you know, the truth is you and, and I or anybody are not in a company are probably not going to be doing a lot of this financial analysis. We're going to be thinking about what is it we should be doing as a company? Strategy. What's going to make us competitive? What's going to make us um stay up to date with the technologies that we have. How are we gonna move even if it's ever so slowly? Now, so what is that? So so again, you're saying, so finance, what the heck do I need to know about this for? Well, because you're gonna to have to come up with the visions for what this is gonna be mean on the manufacturing floor. Your comptroller, your treasurer, your accountants, frankly, don't know much about that, but they do know how to, implement this and to do a capital budgeting campaign, figure out whether this is in fact going to make us money. We'll talk today about pro forma financial statements, looking ahead, you know, the what if statements. You all are going to have to literally come up with these great ideas, do some homework, and in many ways, sell this to your bosses and, and get there, you know, okay, yeah, let's see what this would do to us. And at that point, somebody's going to have to go to the controllers with, with the data and the information and the, the potential for improvements in this process line, whether that's reduced, you know, errors, is that increased efficiencies and turnovers, you know, what is it that you're really trying to get out of that so that then that controller or, or treasurer can actually put it into numbers and do some forecasting, you know. I also want you to be able to understand that. And after taking a class like that, this 
you're going to have the tools to be able to read that. And, and, and at any given time, you're going to probably have to sit down with that accountant and go, okay, this is, tell, tell me how it works for our company. Every company is a little different. All of those statements they have the same format in general, but sometimes they still look different. They, they may do that for a year. They may, they may cut it into to pieces. They may average some things that you're not used to seeing averaged here, but still, you're going to know this language of finance and be such smarter users in every situation in your, your company. Well, Kathy, you're on fire right now. So you just basically helped me understand that finance is a language. And I made the mistake of taking French class in high school when I should have taken finance. I think that's what you're telling me. Well, you know, I, I think, I, look, I, I was a Spanish girl. I lived in Texas a lot of my life. And it was really helpful to know that, too, because it's a different language. Um, but the language of finance is so important. And I'm shocked at how often I will read things out of the trade literature where somebody says, hey, look at this, revenues are up for the industry. And what they're really talking about when I read between the lines and the details is that they meant profits, you know, or even more so net profits, not the same thing. You guys know revenues or sales, it's that top line, whatever way we generate it. And profits are, are down here. And yeah, you can have a gross profit or that operating margin or that, you know, earnings before interest and taxes. It, when you get that to, to that bottom one, earnings for interest taxes, you're getting real close to your, your net profit. If you don't know those things and you're talking to other people in the industry, you're probably going to misunderstand what they mean. That's, that's critical. You, and you'll need to be able to ask the questions. You're talking about sales revenue or you're talking about net profit. Otherwise, you're going to walk away with, with the wrong impression. Um, so... It again, that language will make you a more savvy business person. Period. Well, Kathy, let's let's continue diving in with the language this week. Uh, we're talking about financial forecasting. We're not talking about uh, weather. We're talking about do we have the finances to do what we need to do. So let's let's jump in talking about pro forma statements. So first of all, tell us why are these so important, especially in the realm. Uh, of smart manufacturing? Well, you know, pro forma statements are important for any business because they, um, and by the way, that word is Latin, obviously, kind of for roughly kind of a for form or before form, matter of form. Um, but it allows us to do what if games. We know what our financial statements looked like last year. We probably have some good idea of what they're going to even look like this year, because typically you'll do forecasts of some sort. Um, if we wanted to, we can go very a little farther with those forecasts and do pro forma statements, literally income statements, balance sheets, even cash budgets if we wanted to. Um, so they are financial reports, the same ones we've been learning, but based on hypothetical scenarios, okay, we're going to use assumptions and projections. Lots of those assumptions will be based on what we've been doing before. Some of those projections will be based on perhaps what we think sales will be um, in the coming year. Some of those might be based on what this new technology will do for us in this operation. So are we going to be able to um, get more produced 
in say a week period and which is going to directly influence our finished goods you know inventory and perhaps what we can even sell uh, may have to to rethink our, our our distribution and and sales you know lines so these pro forma statements um, are often used at big turning points or juncture points in a corporation to help make decisions on, should we go forward with this? What looks good about this? Are we structuring our debt? Are we structuring our, our big costs that are gonna be there no matter what we do? Are we, are we structuring this right so that we can actually make money? You know, and what are our risks here? I, you know, I probably haven't um, in, in this podcast yet made a big enough deal about the risk return trade-off. And in this particular week where we're talking about pro formas and get into leverage next, this is where risk becomes a really big um, kind of a turning point for us. How much risk are we willing to take in our business? The more risk we take, typically the more return, the higher return we take. And even the use of debt, as we're going to see, is, is risky. But if I'm using debt, or I like to call it other people's money, I don't have to invest my own money. I can go invest somebody else's money to increase my sales by taking on this new project or this new product line, whatever it might be. Wow, that's a great way for me to make a personal return using somebody else's money. That's the whole idea of leverage in the first place. What's the risk? Pretty obvious. What if the sales don't generate? What if I don't get what I expect out of it? I still have the debt. I have to pay it no matter what. We, we get in over our heads as we'll see as we talk more. So that, that risk return trade-off is critical. On the other hand, if I know the market's booming, I know I have a proven sales um, promotion tactic. I know that if I miss out on this, this might be the biggest missed opportunity in my life. Uh, I might look a little differently at, at debt, particularly if I have a good enough balance sheet, I can handle this, this looks great. And in fact, if I miss this, I may, again, this may be the juncture where I catapult my business to that next level by taking, taking this. If it's a minimal risk, absolutely. And, and you know, I've been in board, in board decisions where we knew it could be a catapult to a catastrophically new operation, but the risk was way too great for us. It, we just knew we couldn't do it. On the other hand, you know, sometimes baby steps is the way to do it. You can still take some small risks and, and get there slower. And, and with smart manufacturing, there are lots of things that you can do sometimes on a smaller basis rather than the, the whole, you know, installed base. Yeah, we're going to throw out the installed base. We're going to put a new piece of automation in there, you know, and, and do the whole thing over again. That's very expensive. And it, it might be not worth the risk, depending on what you're going after. Sometimes you have to do those things. Big corporations do it all the time. They plan for those on you know, 10, 20, 30 year horizons. So, um, but that always somewhere in those key decisions is that, what if, can I handle that much risk? 
So, Kathy, it seems like the cash budget is perhaps among the pro forma statements, one that has a lot of significance for making any kind of big capital decision. Can you talk about the relationship between the pro forma statements and uh, that calculating that cash budget? Yeah, we usually think of, you know, the, the statement of cash flows, the balance sheets and the income statements as is sort of those key financial statements. And if you wanted to, you can go in and do a cash budget the literal month-to-month projections, but once you've done those, those are all really, really valuable Um, because they tell you if you have enough money to run that business, you know, and I might say not necessarily whether I'm making a profit or not, but whether I have the cash to keep the doors open and people paid, right? So it is, it is um, um, critical that I can keep it, keep track of cash, at any point in time uh, for what I'm doing. The, I think I, I said it earlier, small businesses often know, you know, what do these sales look like? What do I got to pay in terms of my people? What do I got to pay in terms of my, you know, accounts payable? And where is that checkbook going with me? You know, really small businesses do, big ones too. But you know, they're going to have a line of credit that's going to be operating, you know, almost automatically. But they'll know there's a point at which they're going to go, whoa, you know, this is too low or, 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 or much too big. So yes, you can use, you know, and, and not everybody's going to go that far with a pro forma statement, but those pro forma income statements and uh, particularly that income statement, it's going to be really valuable to people who are, who, who are looking at new big projects. Truthfully, the net present value calculations that we'll do a little later when we're looking at actual capital budgeting campaigns, you're going to see exactly in this class how you could calculate a, a, a new project and identify whether that's going to work or not for you. With that information, you go to income statement, then you can begin to think about cash. Yeah, those are all valuable, Elizabeth, pieces we have to have. So, Kathy, I'm curious about the accuracy, right? Because these are you know, pro forma, we're, we're kind of looking into the future, we're forecasting here. You talked about risk and return. You know, do people make multiple pro forma statements? Like, here's the best case scenario. Here's the worst case scenario. Can you talk more about the accuracies of this, or how how we how we make these accurate? You well, you're using exactly the right term because we often do what's called scenario analysis. You know, looking at the good, better, you know, best, you know, and the worst case scenarios too. And I have learned through history and reading a lot and hearing about examples, you know, I can remember, I'm old enough now to have been through some pretty big downturns in the economy, one in, in, in the Texas area, Houston area, where, you know, it might've been somebody just reaching up and turning a faucet and 40% of revenues went away overnight. That's a crisis of major proportions. And, you know, you, you, you learn through those things that um, those companies that did forecast that as a potential and had a plan for what to do if that happened, come out better. We have renowned bank where I was living at the time who, who had literally forecast that as a potential problem and, and, and came out just fine. Um, working with a, a company that really large um, plumbing wholesaler, believe it or not, at the summer, watching that CEO know, oh, know exactly what to do. The minute it hit, nobody believed that it was going to stick around. He knew exactly what was going to happen. 
those guys are rare. People who have that feel for industry. Most of us aren't aren't that good. But the value of scenario analysis when you're looking at performance is that you can see the what if games and that risk return that we were talking about. That's where you really see it come out, right? Because if I look at the very best situation and I can see in the high side how far we can go, and I can look at the worst situation and see how far down we can go, for me, that's where I can determine whether or not I can afford that risk. Because if I'm, again, when we look at leverage, when we go down, it can go down really quickly. On the other hand, the upside can be really good too. These are important pieces. Now, when you ask me how accurate these things are, well, you're talking to a supply chain lady here. You know, that's, I'm a professor of a supply chain sales engineering. I've been in, in the, the involved in the distribution in, in vertical channels my whole life. And there's, you know, when you're talking about in, inventory, there's one thing we can say is absolutely true about inventory projections, inventory forecasts. They're always wrong. That's just a, a well-known adage. Everybody knows that. But that doesn't mean they're not valuable. And it also doesn't mean that they don't get darn close, you know. And the and the bigger, the more aggregate they are, the more likely they're to be somewhat. I, I can I can forecast sometimes nationwide sales a little bit better than I can my own hometown or my state. Believe it or not, it just works that way. Uh, but on the other hand, they're not always going to be right. Um, so there's that. There's another piece of that risk, Adam, is that we have to keep that in mind. We also have to, you know, really great companies who do this and make forecasts year to year, look back and see how, how did we do back then? How did we do, you know, five, four, three, two, one years ago? And how far were we off and why are we? And they continue to adjust their own processes and forecasting mechanisms so that they get better and better at it. But again, nobody's nobody's ever perfect at it. And nobody can predict a COVID situation perfectly, right? And so, um, and there could be other situations, you know, a war, who could on the West Coast have predicted the fires and or, you know, or right out on the, the Southeast Coast, the hurricanes that we've seen in recent years. How, those things have to be part of that worst case, unforeseen, unknowable scenarios that we all at least have some sense of, of what, we, what we could or would do if those things happen. I, I think most, most large corporations know about those, you know, have, have, have those kinds of things in mind, you know, um, particularly if they're working on a global scale, they have a, a village of people that they can depend upon if they, if they need help because there's a crisis in a particular part of the world. Um, you just learn through experience what works. So Kathy, I'm imagining these these statements on on some CEO's work computer and how they're labeled. <laughs> Do they really have like this big folder of pro forma statements for various doomsday plans? Like this is the <laughs> this is the Probably doomsday. Not. No, probably not. Uh, That's something they'll do once, you know, it, they may do that once a year, maybe even every two or three years when they're at the big trajectory, you know, I'm going to add a new plant on the West side, you know, I'm going to add on a new production line, I'm going to re-automate what I'm doing here, or I'm just going to add some new sensors into this production line. Any of those things, it's more likely to say, what's this going to do for us 
and, and for me to do the scenario analysis. Now, every year they may look at those, um, you know, those, those financial statements at the end of the year. And, and even if it's in their head, make some projections about where this is going to go. I mean, every, every year we do a projection, there's going to be some sort of a, a, a decision-making process. So the answer is no, probably not likely. Um, on the other hand, there may be um, with, with a big, big new investment, big new business, a lot of those scenario analysis that I would go through um, with my with my accountants, with my partners, maybe with my board of directors, to think about is this is this worth doing? Can we can we take this leap? And that's where you'll see yes. Perhaps, you know, they've got on their desktop the, the latest round of scenario analysis and what are the assumptions that go along with those things. You got to remember, it's not just a pro forma. It, it's not a given what those, you know, scenarios might look like. And, and uh, they may have choices about the hypothetical things that we put in. So obviously we wouldn't have necessarily a plan for if a pandemic hits, but if you're a manufacturing company, you should be thinking, well, what if this supply chain gets disrupted? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. In fact, that kind of thinking is very commonly done in supply chains. And you have people who do sensing of the industry, um, large corporations. There's a famous case study of Dell where they literally have a group of people who look out across literally the globe for their supply chain. And, um, there was one year where there was a potential for a strike on the West Coast, and they could see this brewing months before, and they literally went out and bought futures um, for uh, airline transportation because they knew they might not be able to depend on getting those in by ship, and sure enough, uh, the, the worst came to happen. They had all of that in a row, those futures had been bought. They, you know, took up took those options in, and then at the last minute, of course, all their competitors are trying to scramble to to get that those air flights booked as well, and had to pay a whole lot more and had a lot fewer options there. So that kind of, you know, sensing risk mitigation activity is very common, um, particularly among global supply chains, but even among, you know, those that are just here in the U.S. You know, what happens if I have a fire at some warehouse? There's a there's typically a plan in place. You know, it, again, it takes takes a, a village of, of people and sometimes a village of of other players and sometimes even competitors that you know, I've got an arrangement with, if I need something I can buy at cost plus 10, you know, you'd be surprised just how many ways that we um, accommodate um, in both large businesses and small businesses, those kinds of contingencies. So Kathy, this sounds like it's an art form, but it's also a science as well. And there's a lot involved. And so some of it, and there's some witchcraft involved as well, I think is what I'm thinking. <laughs> Some crystal yeah, balls. Yeah, I'm not giving any, not, not going there. <laughs> uh, joking aside, though, can you tell us about how different methods of inventory accounting, like LIFO versus FIFO, affect the different pro forma statements? You know, that's a great question, and it's kind of a fun one right now because we are in a period of inflation and increasing costs. And, of course, LIFO and FIFO 
is is not the difference between dog food and a dog's name. You know, one of my students tried to pass that off as an answer for the difference between LIFO and FIFO. I've never forgot it. He got no points, but did get a, a laugh, laughing, crying face from me. Uh, and I never forgot it. But LIFO, of course, is last in, first out. All right. That is the last thing I purchased is the first thing to go out from a financial standpoint. Think about cost. And then FIFO is, you know, first in, first out. And that's what tend to make sense. Well, of course, you know, the, the, the first thing we buy is the first thing to go out. During periods of significantly increased costs like we have now, LIFO, say compared to FIFO, is going to cause lower inventory costs to show up on both your balance sheet and your and a higher cost of goods sold on that income statement, right? Does that affect you? Yeah, my profitability ratio, my profitability ratios are going to be different. They're going to in fact be smaller under LIFO rather than FIFO. Um, and so, you know, whether I'm looking at profit margin or return or return on stockholders' equity, you know, some of the companies around here right now with this inflation going on are thinking about that. You know, should we be looking at our our LIFO versus FIFO inventory statement. And I don't remember, pretend to remember now the regulations on those. You can get in big trouble making adjustments to those that aren't warranted. Um, but still, it, it, it does, it can have a big impact um, on, on your business. So Kathy, this has been really helpful towards helping us understand uh, the the significance of these pro forma statements. If you're going to bring it home for our listeners who are concerned about how these pro forma statements help us with smart manufacturing decisions, could you give us a summary of what kinds of questions, what kinds of burning questions uh, these pro forma statements can answer for someone interested in implementing a new smart manufacturing uh, charge? Well, number one, is it going to work? Is it going to make a difference in our operations to warrant that investment? That's really what you're looking at. And it wouldn't be, I mean, you, you'll literally have to do, you know, the capital budgeting exercise. You're going to have to do the engineering behind it, figure out all that work. You're going to have to think hard about the risk that you're taking and undertaking it. Here's another burning question I haven't mentioned is the people equation, the culture that you have in your organization. Anytime that you take on a smart manufacturing, you know, automation of any kind, um, you could end up with some, some pushback from employees. It might not be a good fit for the employees that you have. You gotta remember, I'm, I'll throw my age in there again, but I'm old enough to remember when um, some of the business, small businesses particularly went from handbook kipping to buying a computer program to do that. People quit. People had to be let go because they didn't have the skill set to do it because you couldn't afford to just hire somebody else and keep those people on. Well, I have discovered in, in manufacturing environments, too, that people equation can be a very big deal if I'm a very manual oriented operation and I'm already uh, you know, ready to go to uh, automation. You need to think about that. And that's a huge impact on that, that pro forma statement as well, because they're a big piece of your, you know, your, your labor is a big piece of your expenses, you know, your direct expenses, um, perhaps variable expenses, depending on the skill of those uh, people or 
even whether you need them or not now. So um, when we're looking at these, it's not just one statement. It really is a holistic view of your company and whether this is going to be a, a, a good deal and or, or, or not. You know, it, it may be that you look at some of these and go, ah, we can't do this right now. We may have to take one step back and do think about some training for these people, do some other kinds of automation, start with some simple barcodes and scanners that we think maybe they can do first and then begin to think about the sensor and the other kinds of, of key automation um, factors. You know, we, we could go all, all day with those kinds of things, but gives you an idea of what I mean. So, Kathy, I think my three big takeaways are that, you know, finances is really an important language. We need to learn how to speak it. And so we need to really pay close attention and we need to not just be able to identify on a quiz what the answer is. We need to understand what it means so we can talk the language and, and ask clarifying questions. LIFO and FIFO, they are not different dog foods. <laughs> that is very important. And finally, this is one of many of your financial uh, tools that can help you make a decision. But it sounds like really... It, there is no tool, as, as we're rounding the corner in week four and we're thinking about these things, it, we're seeing a buildup here and how it's it's just continually helping us to make the decision for the smart manufacturing. As we learn more about each term, as we learn about each sheet, as we learn about each idea, we're really starting to get a more clearer picture as to whether to move forward and if we move forward, how to make that transition the best possible. Yes, yes. Well said. Thanks. I'm just summarizing your wonderful points. Well, this is fantastic. As always, Kathy, I really appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully this will kind of give them, give your learners the material that they need that drawing from that, you know, all that experience you have, all that wisdom, helping them to see between the lines, you know, the color. I think this is the color commentary, you know, show us the things that uh, are not outlined clearly in the textbook and give us those examples. So we appreciate that. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.